It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 333 for the 10th of March, 2013. This week, Google wants people to use their real names now. When downloading software, be aware of what comes with it. And in short circuits, 50 million users of Evernote must change their passwords. Hey, Apple, where are your touchscreen laptops? And Google looks at same-day delivery. If you've logged on to YouTube or any of several other Google services recently, Google may have asked for your real name instead of your username. Google presents this as a way to improve service for users, but not everybody agrees. Whatever your opinion of this is, Vince Cerf, in an interview with Reuters, had some thoughts that I think you'll find worth considering. Surf talked with Reuters reporter Jerry Shi. Surf is a Google executive who was a driving force behind the internet. Before we review his comments to Shi, consider his background. Surf was a program manager for DARPA, that's the U.S. Department of Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That was the group responsible for starting the Internet, and he was instrumental in developing TCP-IP. That's the Transmission Control Protocol Internet Protocol, the exact technology that still runs the Internet. Working at MCI, Surf was involved in developing the first commercial email application on the Internet, MCI Mail. He was a key player in the formation of ICANN, that's the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, the group that assigns IP addresses worldwide. So in other words, Vint Cerf has some background with this thing we call the Internet. And Cerf says that Google is wrong in forcing users to reveal their real names, particularly in light of increasing government surveillance of social media. But he qualifies that. Google has been pushing the use of real names for the past year and a half for improved authentication across Google's many products and services. At the moment, users can still display handles instead of their real names, and Surf told Reuters that this allows adequate choice now. If you use Gmail, YouTube, Google+, and other services, Google will suggest that you use the common name you're known by in the real world. Surf told Reuters that using real names is useful, but he said he doesn't think it should be forced on people. According to the published report, Surf added that Google currently doesn't require the use of real names. The key point of the Reuters article is this, and I quote, But Surf recognized using real names could land social media users under oppressive regimes in fatal trouble and Google will not enforce its policy in such instances. But in many other cases, user authentication should be promoted, he said. Anonymity and pseudonymity are perfectly reasonable under some situations, Surf said, but there are cases where, in the transactions, both parties really need to know who we're talking to. So what I'm looking for is not that we shut down anonymity, but rather we offer an option, when needed, that can strongly authenticate who the parties are. 
Some people are unhappy about Google's push for users to log on with their real names. The same charges have been aimed at Facebook. It seems to me that there are competing concerns here, and that both have a certain amount of legitimacy. There is the expectation of anonymity, and anyone who wishes to speak out anonymously appreciates the ability to do so. But if you've been attacked, harassed, or stalked by someone on the Internet, someone whose identity is secret, you might find yourself wishing for some way to identify your tormentor. Surf has warned that governments around the globe have increased their surveillance of the Internet. Although repressive regimes are the ones that cause the most concern, the surveillance is not limited to them. Google and Surf believe that most people want to be protected from government surveillance and intrusion, but most of the people I've heard from are more concerned about Google or Facebook. Google, after all, probably has more information about people than do all the state security agencies worldwide. In the wrong hands, this information could be dangerous, and some people think that Google's hands are the wrong hands. Initially, Google required the use of real names on Google+, but last year the company started to allow some users to post with nicknames. So far, this ability is limited to a small number of the service's 500 million subscribers. And you'll find a link to the full Reuters interview with Vince Cerf on the TechBiter Worldwide website. TechBiter Worldwide frequently recommends applications, some free and some commercial. Regardless of the application type, it's important to review the download and installation to avoid some unpleasant surprises. Sometimes the download page for an application will display a huge button labeled Download. It'll be up near the top of the page. Now the catch is the file you really want to download is shown as a small text link down at the bottom somewhere, and clicking that big download button won't download what you think it will. All too often, these faux links are served by Google and other advertising services. The files are usually safe enough, meaning that they aren't malware, but they're not what you wanted. Even well-respected sites such as Softpedia aren't exactly upfront about what they display. You'll see an example on the TechBiter Worldwide website in which the download link that you notice first is not what you want. That's link number two, further down the page, and not in as bright a color. I also have an example from CNET. This time there are two links you don't want. The first one at the top of the page and the third one on the right side of the page. The one you really want is on the left. This kind of behavior happens most frequently with freeware applications and free online services. The ads are what pay the bills, but the display techniques used are often intentionally deceptive. Not illegal, just unethical. Another potential for trouble comes when you download and install an application. During the installation, something else will be installed. The extras are often toolbars for one or more of your browsers, and I've seen this behavior about equally with free and commercial software. 
Avoiding those extra applications is usually easy if you remember always to select the Custom Installation option. This should show you everything that will be installed and where it will be installed. In some cases, the ride-along crapware will be installed without any warning at all by the standard installation. In some cases, the extra components will be mentioned, but in very small or grayed-out text, even in the custom installation. You'll see an example on the TechBinder Worldwide website that I consider to be a particularly egregious example. And unfortunately, it's from an application that I like a lot, one called PDF Creator. If you don't select the Advanced Installation option, you'll never even see the screen that tells you you're going to get the Pokey Toolbar. And if you do select the Advanced option, it would be very easy to miss the fact that you're being offered a custom option. And if you don't click a grayed-out radio button, you will install the Pokey Toolbar and set it to be your default. Now, what does grayed-out tell you? It tells you it's not available. But in this case, it is available. You just have to click it. There is no description for this, none whatsoever, other than unethical. So once you click the Custom Installation Radio button, all of the Pokey options are selected by default. You have to deselect them. And now you might think you're safe, but you would be wrong. The next screen offers yet another application that I didn't want, a thing called FrostWire. And if I don't deselect the item, it will be installed for me. Now, I understand that people who write freeware applications might want to monetize them using some method other than free will donations. And believe me, as someone who offers the donation option, I can attest to the fact that it really doesn't work very well. But resorting to subterfuge and trickery, this is not a good business model. And this behavior isn't limited to small companies. By default, updates to the Adobe Reader will install applications that you probably don't want. These warnings really shouldn't be needed. This isn't the kind of warning that I like to talk about, but it's the kind of warning that needs to be talked about. Companies should feel free to offer applications such as FrostWire, whatever it is, or the Pokey Toolbar, whatever it is, or any additional applications that they want that are related to the application you want to download, or aren't related for that matter. But these should be offers, offers, not something you'll receive unless you explicitly opt out. So to borrow the old carpenter's rule and paraphrase it just a bit, read twice and download once. In short circuits, following an attack that breached security at Evernote, the company says all 50 million users must change their passwords as a precaution. This was expected following a report last weekend that an attacker had been able to gain access to customer information. The only surprising aspect of the story is that it took Evernote until Wednesday to act. Although I use Microsoft's OneNote instead of Evernote, I do have an Evernote account that I opened when I was evaluating the two services. The attack occurred sometime prior to last weekend, Evernote hasn't specified when, and I learned of it on Monday, 
but it wasn't until Wednesday morning that I received the company's official notification. The company said the password reset was being done in an abundance of caution. The attacker was able to access some encrypted passwords, but Evernote wouldn't say how many. It should be noted that decrypting an encrypted password is not a trivial task. Evernote's a handy little application that allows users to store small snippets of information so that it's available from any device where Evernote applications are installed. That includes phones, tablets, and computers. Evernote's message to users said, In our security investigation, we have found no evidence that any of the content you store in Evernote was accessed, changed, or lost. We also have no evidence that any payment information for Evernote Premium or Evernote Business customers was accessed. The investigation has shown, however, that the individuals responsible were able to gain access to Evernote user information, which includes usernames, email addresses associated with Evernote accounts, and encrypted passwords. Even though this information was accessed, the passwords stored by Evernote are protected by one-way encryption. In technical terms, they are hashed and salted. So, if you're an Evernote user, you should log on to your account as soon as possible. After signing in, you'll be prompted to enter a new password. Evernote says that it will be updating several of its applications to make the password change process easier. In its message, Evernote also described how to create and maintain a secure password. For example, avoid using simple passwords based on dictionary words, never use the same password on multiple sites or services, and Evernote reminds, never click on a reset password request in email. Instead, go directly to the service. After using an Android tablet for a year and a Windows tablet for a couple of months, I find myself increasingly wanting to reach out and touch just about any screen on any computer that I'm in front of, particularly notebooks. It seems that Apple users are going through the same thing. Farad Manju, writing for Slate, notes that most portable devices that run Windows or Android, whether tablets or notebooks, have touch screens. Consider Google's Chromebook Pixel, $1,300, or the Asus Vivio Book for $500, HP's Pavilion Touch Smart at $650. Those are some examples that he suggested. All of these have touchscreens, or, Manju notes, the thin and light PCs that compete with the MacBook Air. They all have touchscreens. All but the MacBook Air. If you touch its screen, he says, all you'll get are smudges. I read some magazines on my Windows tablet. The Barnes & Noble Nook Reader has the best interface because it is a Metro app and it responds to gestures. Some of the magazines I read are available only on the Zinio Reader, though, which has an acceptable Metro app. But a few of the magazines are available only on the Zinio 4 Reader, and it runs only on the desktop. It doesn't respond to gestures. There was a time when I thought touch-based computers were silly. The impression lasted until about 20 seconds after I tried my first tablet with a touchscreen. If I had a current model Apple notebook computer, it would make me crazy not to be able to perform tasks by touching the screen. I think Manju is onto something here. Here's what he wrote. I tended to touch for leisure activities, and I'd stick to the keyboard and trackpad when doing work. 
but this wasn't by design, and I only discerned the leisure versus work behavior when I thought about it later. Indeed, while using these touch laptops, the touching became intuitive and invisible. I flitted among the screen, the trackpad, and the keyboard from moment to moment without ever having to think about it. And that, it seems to me, is what is so delightful about Windows 8, if I may use the word delightful about any operating system. Windows 8 actually includes two interfaces. One of those interfaces is perfect for reading books and magazines or playing games. The other is perfect for working with words, data, and images. Perfect might be carrying it a little too far, but you get the idea. So, asks Manju, why hasn't Apple, the inventor of the iPad after all, added touchscreen capabilities to its notebooks? And he answered his own question. Apple would also have to reimagine its operating system, redesigning it so that every element could be controlled as easily with your fingers as with a pointer. Microsoft solved this problem by building a touch-friendly interface that sits alongside the old Windows point-and-click interface. But I don't think Apple would go for that. It feels too tacked on and inelegant. So, it appears that Manju believes Apple will eventually turn out a touchscreen-enabled notebook computer, but for the foreseeable future, he says, we're likely to be stuck with touchless Macs. You'll find a link to the full article on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Buy something from Amazon, and if you've paid your annual Amazon Prime fee, you'll probably have it in your hands two days later, and with no fee for shipping. Google seems to want to compete with Amazon, and it's offering same-day delivery, if you live in San Francisco. Google Shopping Express works with local stores that want to sell products online. Make a purchase through the service, and Google will schedule a delivery service to pick up the product from the store and deliver it to you. The system is currently in test mode and has been for several weeks. The price hasn't been determined. It could be a per-item delivery fee or an annual subscription fee, such as what's used by Amazon. Amazon's fee, by the way, is $79 a year. Walmart has tested a similar service, but many people considered its delivery fee to be too high, and Walmart's service didn't provide a way for shoppers to return items other than take them back to the store. Amazon's wide variety of goods and its two-day delivery option cause many shoppers to go directly to Amazon's website to conduct a search instead of starting with Google. As a result, Amazon gets the sale and without having to pay Google for the lead. Needless to say, Google doesn't particularly like that. <laughs> Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.